David Kerr is Rhodes Professor of Clinical Pharmacology and Cancer Therapeutics at Oxford University. He has an international reputation for the treatment and research into colorectal cancer, and his work focuses on developing new approaches to cancer treatment. David Kerr has also made a significant contribution to reforming the NHS, and he has been involved in a number of international collaborations to improve the global disparities in cancer care. In this podcast, he discusses his work on colorectal cancer, the process of how new treatments are developed, the changes that he has witnessed in the NHS over his career, and how cancer care differs in developing countries. To start with, David, what prompted your research in working on cancer? Oh, many years ago, when I was a young doctor working in Glasgow, I had an opportunity to work with Sir Kenneth Kalman, who was the then Professor of Oncology. I had done uh, a degree in biochemistry as well as medicine, and there's no doubt that cancer presents a fantastic career in which you can combine basic and laboratory science with decent clinical care being a physician. So it's a great amalgam of the two. So that's really what first got me in. I mean, Ken Kalman was a great visionary and was uh, somebody that was wonderful to work with. But it did complement my interest in science, my curiosity in all of that, and being able to link that to, to medicine. And as I went through cancer... These days, there are enough of us to start focusing or super-specialising or site-specialising. And, and I became very interested in, in, in gastrointestinal cancers. That's because when I was a kid, there weren't many people working on them. They were difficult to treat. They were notoriously rapidly fatal. And they presented a, a real therapeutic challenge. So, so given that, it was a very interesting area to get into all those years ago. And could you explain to us in simple terms what cancer is and a little bit about gastrointestinal cancer in particular? It's interesting to define cancer because although we think of it often as being a, a single and homogeneous disease, it's far from that. It's over a hundred different diseases with different natural histories, different characteristics, different means of behaviour and of course different types of treatment. But what unifies cancer um, are three biological properties, and that's uncontrolled growth um, is one. The second is the capacity for the cancer cells to be able to invade and destroy normal tissue. And third, and perhaps worst of all, is the capacity to metastasize, and that means that tiny seeds of the cancer can break off from the primary tumour and be carried in the bloodstream to distant organs. Classically, the work that I do in bowel cancer, the seeds of cancer can break off from the primary cancer that starts in the bowel and get trapped and grow in the liver. And often it's the metastases, the secondaries, the seeds of cancer that, that abbreviate life and, and cause people to die prematurely. And it's all about loss of control because clearly a cancer starts in a normal cell. And we know that for a single cell to become a fully-fledged, aggressive, um, spreading cancer cell, you require four or five different genetic changes or mutations. And because these occur by random or at chance, it takes time. That's why cancer is a disease of the elderly, because we accumulate these genetic lesions, these, these damages to cells by chance as we grow older. And, and therefore diseases, cancer is predominantly a disease of those of 70 and above. And although we see cancer from time to time in young people, that's often because of inherited a cancer gene. So 
it sounds awful, but if, if cancer were a race and if crossing the finishing line was when we developed cancer, if we inherit damaged genes from our mother or father, it's sort of like starting the race halfway down the course. Therefore, rather than developing the cancer when you're 70, you develop it in your 20s and 30s. Could you tell us a little bit about what some of the signs and symptoms of gastrointestinal cancer are? So I've been interested in, in gastrointestinal cancer for oh, 25 years. Uh, and, and of course, if we think of the whole gastrointestinal tract, then there's cancer of the stomach, there's cancer of the small intestine, cancer of the large intestine, bowel or colorectal cancer. There can be cancer of the glands like the pancreas and cancer of the liver. So I, I would sort of see patients who had cancers in all of those. But I guess the cancer that we see most commonly, that, that we're most focused on researching into and, and seeking to treat better, is bowel or colorectal cancer. There are about 30,000 new cases in the United Kingdom every year. It's the second commonest cancer in the West after lung cancer. It affects men slightly more commonly than women and um, is often associated with upset tummy. So it may be a change in bowel habit, either diarrhea or constipation. It may be associated with griping or colicky abdominal or tummy pain. It can be associated with weight loss and loss and lack of appetite and sometimes bleeding from the tail end or from the back passage. The problem is that, that many of those signs and symptoms are so relatively common mm. that people can ignore them and that, that's why the cancer often presents at a late stage when the cancer is quite large or even when it's spread, metastasized to involve different organs like the liver. And what are the risk factors of this type of cancer and are there ways through health and lifestyle changes that we can lower our risk of getting it? All cancers, regardless of where they start, are caused by an interplay between the genes that we inherit from our mother and father and the environment in which we choose or sometimes are forced to live. And therefore the things that we can control are not our genes, obviously, but we can control the environment and lifestyle. And for most GI cancers, it wouldn't surprise you to know that if you eat less red meat, that will cut down the chances of getting it. If you eat more green vegetables, if you eat your five packets of fruit a day, you know, the, the, the advice that a decent mother would give to a, to a normal child. Avoid smoking. Bowel cancer is associated with a sedentary lifestyle, so exercise, be active. So nothing magical, a, a, a sort of fit and healthy life, alcohol in moderation. Don't smoke, nor should you anyway. Be active and, and a decent balanced diet with plenty of roughage and greens. You work both as a physician and a researcher. How do you combine these two roles? I have a wonderfully balanced life in that I'm allowed to work with my colleagues in the laboratory as well as still being a proper doctor. So I love and continue to see patients. And one without the other would make the sort of job untenable. So if I were only a scientist, I would find that much less interesting. If I were only a cancer doctor, given often the limited tools and treatments that we have, that would be quite a difficult job. But by combining the two, by feeling that we're making some contribution and moving forward and making a difference, it's, it's great. It's a, it's a really good way to bring the two together. And I was lucky when I was a kid that I did biochemistry and degrees and a lot of science. 
uh, as well as the medicine. So I had a balanced education and upbringing. And there's a great opportunity to, I guess the way to look at it is thinking that if we can unlock the mysteries or the differences that separate a normal cell from a cancer cell, then rather than just using that as knowledge for knowledge's sake, for somebody like me who's interested in treating patients, I'm always looking for a therapeutic or diagnostic angle. So how could we turn that basic research into a weapon or a tool or a treatment or something that can stop the cancer growing? And that, that's where the two come together really, really well. And can you tell us a little bit more about the process of you know, the development of new cancer drugs from the bench to the bedside? One of the things that we do, I think, wonderfully well in Oxford is what's called translational medicine. And that's got the term now of bench to bedside. So we take a, 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 an observation that's made in the laboratory by a basic scientist and we see how we can apply that either by developing a new treatment or a new diagnostic tool. But let me define that or take that stage further because increasingly we would see the journey as being circular and we'd talk about bench to bedside and back again. And one of the important jobs that I've got with one foot in the laboratory and one foot in the clinic, uh, when we take novel cancer drugs into the patient for trials, is to try and take perhaps samples or biopsies of the cancer back into the laboratory so that we're testing the ideas and the hypothesis that generated the new drugs. So it's a, a virtuous cycle in a way. And again, that's one of the real strengths of Oxford. When we have the cancer clinic and the cancer laboratory, physically and geographically juxtaposed so that the whole environment's all about you know about about learning and applying all that we can for patient benefit i'm an example of a i mean a specific piece of work that that, that we're doing just now with my colleague professor nick lathang who's a very gifted cancer cell biologist and he's identified a, a series of proteins called um, histone deacetylase he's a big long fancy name but these are proteins or enzymes that are involved in controlling synthesis of DNA and cell growth and cell proliferation, often at the heart of what differentiates a cancer cell from a normal cell. And he worked out the structure of these chemicals and then working very closely indeed with um, chemical engineers, he devised some small molecular weight drugs which could bind to, inhibit, stop the function of these enzymes that seem to be important in driving the cancer's bad behaviour, if you like. So he, he did a whole lot of experiments in, in tissue culture, looking at cancer cells, showing that these small molecules, which inhibited this particular class of proteins or enzymes, stopped the cancer cells dead in their track. And I mean, a fantastic observation. We then took those into animal models. Uh, this is something I feel that I can defend very easily because it's impossible for me to develop cancer drugs without using them to see if I can treat and cure mouse cancer. It's an absolutely mandatory, necessary step. And again, the chemicals were very effective in curing mouse cancer. And then, then we make that extraordinary leap of faith when we take a drug which can cure mouse cancer and pose the question, can it have any useful effects in human cancer? And if I were a mouse cancer doctor, I'd be king. Because with all the work we've done in the past, we, we're very good at treating mouse cancer. There's not much of a market in it, but, but um, it's something we can do really, really well. 
it's funny, uh, this is an anecdote, and I'm uh, sort of moving sideways a little, but when I was a youngster in Glasgow, uh, this is how we can actually use animal models for good, I used some of the treatments we developed to treat human a human cancer called lymphoma. I adjusted the dose of those to start treating dog lymphomas, and uh, when I worked there, we treated the vice-chancellor's dog and cured it of its dog cancer, so I became a hero for a day to the... Um, so. Actually, you know, uh, for those who are interested or even opposed to animal modelling, we can actually model back from humans to animals and do some good doing things that way. But we do all the experiments in the laboratory and then we take that leap of faith in which we treat our first patient. And these are often patients who've got advanced cancer, cancer which is refractory to conventional treatment. So they've had everything, every standard treatment that we can give but still the cancer grows, and those patients say there must, surely there's something else, Doc. And we would say, honestly, there's an experimental drug. Um, you may be the first patient in the whole world to be treated with it. We cannot be certain if you'll benefit from it. We don't even know what the side effects are. But here's the science. This is what we're doing. And people may find it surprising, but there are many patients who will volunteer for that type of experimental cancer chemotherapy, I guess, hoping against hope that they'll benefit in some way, even though we're so icily, completely honest with the you know, potential for it, you know, not doing any, giving any help at all, possibly even doing harm in terms of side effects. So what we would do is we would start, we would take a dose um, that we'd worked out in the mice, we would treat three patients and if there were no side effects we'd keep doubling the dose of the drug until we saw tumour shrinkage or until we saw side effects and that's what we call a phase one trial. It's a desperately important clinical experiment because that's when we learn how to give the drug, um, what the pattern of side effects will be, what the right dose will be and then once we've worked that out, and, and patients for whom there is no other hope, we would then take it on to see, does the drug work, does it shrink the cancer down, or is it better than existing drugs? And do you think your research has made a difference? I'd like to think so. I mean, clearly, you know, all that we leave are sort of footprints in shifting sands. But I've been thinking about this recently for a, for a host of reasons. And I, I've been involved in you know, developing new cancer treatments, particularly in the field of colorectal cancer. And some of our trials have changed clinical practice. So they've, we, we, we've started treating patients in a different way with a different type of treatment. And I think with the work that we've done, particularly in the field of, of adjuvant therapy, so these are bowel cancer patients who have the cancer cut out. We hope that the surgeons manage to cure them, but despite surgical removal of the tumour, in 50% of patients the cancer comes back. That's because seeds of the cancer have escaped before the time of surgery and they're so small we cannot see them with the naked eye or detect them in our scanners but they're hiding elsewhere in the body and eventually those cancers will come back and grow. And we brought a treatment to the UK in which after surgery we would give six months of chemotherapy and we would cure an extra 10% of patients. So through that work and some other work in that field, we've probably contributed to saving thousands of lives over the past 10 years. So something I can say on behalf of the large team of doctors and scientists that I work with, but with a small sense of pride and some sense of achievement.
Do you work with students in, in the course of your job? One of the beauties about working in a place like Oxford is that we get fantastic under and postgraduate students to work with. So we get these bright, bright kids, constantly challenging her, you know, pushing, probing at every sort of element of it. So we have lots of the kids coming through our clinic, which is great because it introduces them to cancer, you know, the sort of commonest cause of death in the UK. So it's important that the medical students see it. And, and of course, with the postgraduates, there's an opportunity for me to be able to, um, I guess in a gentle way, try to persuade the brightest ones to join us in this crusade, I uh, sort of use the term generally, but in the battle against cancer so that we can attract the brightest kids in, kids who are cleverer than us, so that they can drive the science and clinical treatment up to the next level. And what advice would you have for current or future students who'd like to follow a similar career path to yours? I've just had the most wonderful time because I get to speak with the brightest and best of scientists. I get to cherry pick the best of their ideas and do my best to apply those logically to patients. And I get to be a doctor. And, and one of the things in cancer is that because we're dealing with a terribly frightened population because cancer is still a stigmatising disease because people are still terribly fearful of it that pushing all the science and all the clinical trials and all the, the hard stuff that I do to one side if we can offer nothing else we can offer patients honesty, decency and some drop of the milk of human kindness and that's a good place, it's a good physicianly place to be. And all interactions between doctor and patients are based in love and not, not in any way emotional or physical or sexual love, none of that stuff, but the love of a mother for a child or a brother for a sister. And so we as doctors get a lot back. So there's a lot of trust and the interaction is a is a close one and if you're good at it, and if you do it properly, and if you train the students, can be incredibly uplifting. You've had a significant role in reforming the NHS. What are some of the improvements that you've noticed in the treatment of cancer between when you started your career and now? When I, I, I left Glasgow, clearly back since I'm Scottish, when I left Glasgow to move to Birmingham, I've been in Oxford for seven, eight years or something now, Brian Edwards, who's a great friend of mine, who was the director of the Regional Health Authority, said, leave all your test tubes and your clinics and your patients behind and join me in an attempt to improve the quality of cancer care across the West Midlands. And we were looking at figures then that showed if you, there were 26 different health authorities in the West Midlands, and if we compared survival outcomes in the best, 75% of patients would be alive and well after the operation for a cancer, and in the worst, it would only be 50%. So a huge difference that depended on quality of treatment the patients got, the stage, the size of cancer when they presented and so on. And, and Brian said, if we could close the gap between the 50% survival and get them up to 75%, think of the thousands of lives that you could save, what a prize that would be. And of course, I find that impossible to resist. And therefore it was Brian who got me involved in reforming the NHS and saying that if we could just apply that which we know evenly and fairly and, and squarely, we'd save many, many, many lives. So I get really into policy, 
writing national cancer plans, doing all that stuff. And, and I think we've made a difference. Everybody knows from, from work in the media that the UK's cancer survival figures are, are crap. You know, we're twinned with Estonia. We're way behind the States, you know, France, the Netherlands, Norway, Germany, and so on. And, and we took those figures, uh, the international survival figures, to Tony Blair, then Prime Minister, who really got behind us. And working with Alan Milburn, the Health Minister then, really got behind us to build a national cancer plan to make a difference. And, and using some simple precepts, getting cancer doctors to work in teams, getting cancer doctors and surgeons to specialise in particular tumour types, supporting research, asking us to use guidelines to improve the quality and, and homogenised treatment, we've made a difference. And we've now got the fastest improving survival rates in the, in the world. And what do you think some of the current challenges facing the NHS in cancer care are? For me, I think the next round of reform of cancer care has got to be about outcomes, not targets. Somehow, somewhere, we've bureaucratised the whole system and when we come now to inspect cancer services, there are 400 standards and it's become virtually an irrelevant tick-box exercise. Now, I'd far rather see us concentrating on how many patients survive um, after chemotherapy, how many patients survive after surgery, what are the side effects, what harm do we do patients in terms of side effects and so on. So I, I would like to see a mirror reflected back at the service that allowed teams of doctors to say, great, you know, we're in the top 10% or, uh-oh, we're in the bottom 10%, we're doing something wrong. Let's look at it, let's understand it, and let's drive up and improve the quality of our care so that the outcome that really matters, how many patients' lives that we saved, is at the forefront of all that we do. You've also been involved with a number of collaborations to improve cancer research and treatment globally. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Because of the work that I've done research-wise, I get to lecture all over the world, and I have many, many friends and cancer doctors in many different countries, and... By dint of that, I've been asked to help write a national cancer plan for India to develop a research network there. It's gone fantastically well. And, and with a young colleague, Rahi Bali, uh, we've established a fantastic research network combining Oxford with India's top 10 cancer treatment centres, so-called INDOX. In, in a similar but slightly different vein, I became interested in Africa too. Uh, one of the treatments that we've invented, developed, I think could be very useful indeed for the treatment of liver cancer. So I visited Africa some years ago and was astonished and appalled by the lack of infrastructure that there was. All the cancer projections suggest that the majority of cancer is going to be in the developing world uh, by 2020, with almost 70% of cases being in the developing rather than the developed world. And those countries which are going to be most exposed to cancer are those least prepared to be able to deal with it. And I came back from that wanting to do something about it. And with Alan Milburn, my friend, the former health secretary, we set up an organisation called Afrox to improve the delivery of cancer care in sub-Saharan Africa. What new developments in cancer treatment do you hope to see in the future? I hope that we'll continue to be able to apply, as logically we are, as we are just now, signs to the development of new diagnostics and new treatments. 
I think probably the next uh, major change that we'll see within my working lifetime is a combination of diagnostic tools and treatment. At the moment, I have to treat too many patients with non-specific drugs to benefit a few. So, so for example, in, in my world of bowel cancer, one of the treatments that we have, we have to treat 100 patients to cure an extra four. Of those 100 patients, 40 will have really rotten side effects. And I would like to be able to develop some genetic tests that would allow me to say which patients will benefit most, which patients do we need to reduce the dose of chemotherapy to improve side effects, and in a way to personalise, individualise or tailor treatment, not to, the, not to the population of 100 patients, but to 100 individuals who make up that population. So the concept of personalised medicine, targeting the right treatment to the right patient at the right time and the right dose, that, that's where the future of our research will take us over the next decade.